This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a telling place, a sacred space, where heaven and earth meets. Amen. So this morning I would like for us to consider uh, a couple of things. One is what does, the kingdom, what does kingdom come look like? What does kingdom come look like? We've talked about this quite a bit over the last uh, many months. It comes up over and over again and it came up in this series when we look at or hear the phrase, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the reasons it really resonates with me, or actually I don't really know the reason other than it's, it hits a chord somewhere deep inside with me, that this is not some um, esoteric wishful thinking that Jesus is saying, that he actually understands and expects and is inviting his followers to live as though God's kingdom has come because as we've talked about, it has, right? We've talked about how in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus announces his kingdom, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Not will one day be here, not someday is going to come, not, you know, not when we die and go to heaven, but is at hand is present now and this prayer that Jesus is teaching us is inviting us to let that be true more and more in our lives but in order for us for that to become a reality we have to understand what the kingdom looks like so one description uh, comes from N.T. Wright and he says this about Jesus' ministry, he says, healings, parties, stories, and symbols all said, the forgiveness of sins is happening right under your noses. This is the new exodus, the return from exile, the prophetic fulfillment, the great liberation. This is the disgraceful advent of our astonishing God. I love that image, that image of the fact that as Jesus was walking around with his disciples and healing people and having inappropriate dinner parties and doing all of these different things, he was demonstrating like a living parable that the kingdom was present and this is what it looked like. Now this morning we come to the... Um, this petition about forgiveness. 
But before we get into that, I want to look at a couple of things. The first thing is to recognize that the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer stand independently. They're independent from one another. But the last three are linked in the original language by ands. Almost as if to say, one author said, that life sustained by food is not enough We also need forgiveness of sins and deliverance from temptation. And I think that's right. Because I think any of us who have experienced either in ourselves or in loved ones uh, the deep bitterness of unforgiveness, we know that it is something that poisons us from the inside out. Right? Have you known Someone like that or perhaps experienced that in your own life? I remember as uh, a kid, I had a great aunt. Uh, or not, I didn't only have her. We all had her, right? <laughs> but she was a very sour, mean woman. And we did not like her because we experienced her. She was just sharp. Right? And, um, and we never understood as kids why she was that way. And then one day when I was in college, I spent some time with my grandparents at their home. And my grandparents live, uh, lived in central Minnesota, a very small, tiny little town, small, tiny country covenant church. And there was a cemetery out where the church used to be when the church was out in the country. And I spent one day working with my grandfather, cleaning up in the cemetery, taking leveling headstones, weeding, all of that kind of work. And we came across this grave. And I was like, Grandpa, who is that? And he said, well, that that was your aunt's son who died of encephalitis as a, a young teenager. And he said, and that's why she, is, she never got over that. She was always so angry about that. And all of a sudden, I had a whole different understanding of this woman that I experienced as mean and bitter and angry because in some ways she was, but there, it wasn't just that, you know, it didn't come from nowhere, right? She had this deep grief and pain and anger, probably, at God about losing a child. And it showed up because she couldn't, she couldn't get rid of it. And, that it. and it showed up in that way. And so as we consider this morning what it looks like to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, Or forgive us our debts as we forgive those, our debtors, right? So why the two different versions? This is always, it's always entertaining to say the Lord's Prayer together, is it not? Because we all learn variations. Some we say sins, some say debts and debtors. And actually the Gospels themselves have two different versions. Matthew has what we read this morning, it has debts. And Luke actually has sins, which is fascinating, And we generally, I think, understand it to mean, uh, you know, debts as sins. But if you look at the words 
literally, those words in Matthew, debts and debtors, uh, are literally debts. And some scholars argue that this is an intentional call by Jesus to live into that kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven now. To live into that jubilee spirit of the kingdom where all debts are forgiven. Right? It's provocative. Uncomfortable. Right? I mean, it makes, makes us all, anytime we talk in church about forgiving debts, we get uncomfortable. Right? And in some ways, we've seen a parable, uh, and I, I'm going to venture somewhere, you know, this is not in my notes, Lord have mercy. But we've seen a little parable of this in our own culture recently, haven't we? Where debts are forgiven and people get angry, right? Now, I recognize there's a lot of ins and outs there, right? But I think it says something about us. And I think when Jesus teaches us this prayer... He's inviting us into this reality of the kingdom where we do not hold debts against one another, whether those are literal financial debts or whether those are sins that someone has committed against us. It's a provocative idea, something to at least consider, something to at least wrestle with. Now, one more thing before we, uh, I'll get off the money thing so that we, people can breathe again, Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting that in my, my experience as a pastor is that every time we talk about money, we quickly reduce it and we don't allow that discomfort in, right? So for instance, when we talk about stories or sayings in the Bible, like when Jesus says that it'll, it'll be easier for the, man, for the rich man to go, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into heaven, we very quickly talk about, well, what, what he's talking about is this small gate, the camel had to get down on his knees, blah, 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 right? Instead of doing exactly what Jesus wanted us to do, which was to be uncomfortable and to deal with our issues around money. It's just something we do. Now, it should also not escape, or at least it didn't escape my attention, that as we talk about this, it's interesting to me that Matthew has debts and debtors in this prayer, but Luke has sins and sinners, right? Why is that interesting to me? Because Luke is the gospel where money is talked about more than anything else. Jesus talks about money more in the gospel of Luke than all of the other three gospels. Because Luke is very concerned that we do that work around our relationship to money, right? So isn't that interesting? That the gospel that deals with money has sins and sin, and the gospel that doesn't so much has debts and debtors. Just something for you to wrestle with, free of charge, not my main point. But it is an interesting reality. It is something that we should consider if we take seriously this idea that what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer is for us to be and to live as representatives of that kingdom which is present now. Not just some esoteric, unattainable values. The other piece that jumps out at me as we look at this passage and we think about this prayer. 
I've always found this little clause in the Lord's Prayer somewhat terrifying. Right? Forgive as you have been forgiven, but if you don't, you're not going to you're not going to experience that. I mean, it, it sounds quite stark. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And in some ways, I have always heard that phrase as almost as a threat. Maybe you can relate to that. Like, oh, my goodness, if I don't do this right, then I'm not going to be forgiven. But the more I thought about that, the more I kind of think that that actually says more about us than it does about God. We'll come back to that idea. But it's this idea of what does forgiveness look and feel like. And I think we all know on some level, some of us very deeply, some of us maybe struggle with it, with recognizing that we have our own issues that we have to ask forgiveness for. There's a certain amount of pride that keeps us from doing that. But life generally has a way of breaking us down, does it not? Of bringing us to the point where we have to do that work and recognize that we too need forgiveness and that that forgiveness then needs to flow through us to Others, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, I struggled this week trying to come up with a fresh illustration of what forgiveness looks like. But the reality is is that sometimes things that aren't fresh do a better job. And so I was brought, as I often am when I think about this, back to thinking of a movie that came from the mid-80s. So it's, it's back there a ways. But it's called The Mission. So this movie is set in the 18th century. Robert, uh, uh, Robert De Niro plays um, this, this mercenary who is a really foul character, slave trader in South America. He actually murders his own brother in a fit of jealous rage. And after that murder, he goes uh, to a Jesuit priest who's played by Jeremy Irons and says that for him, redemption is not possible, that he is beyond saving. But Jeremy Irons gives him penance anyways, and that penance is to carry a large net filled with the trappings of his trade, his armor and swords and weapons, and bring it to the very people who he was enslaving. And I want you to just watch this. And this is a longer clip. It's probably the longest clip I've ever shown in a sermon. But I want you to sit with it. And I want you to experience what it looks like and feels like to be forgiven. So that scene gets me every time because it is such a visual example of what forgiveness looks like on so many different levels. The work that the that the person who needs forgiveness has to go through in order to to get to that point where they can let go 
of the thing that they've been dragging around or the thing that has been dragging them around. Right? The, the forgiveness of the very people who this person was seeking or had enslaved. And the welcome and the laughter present in the joy of grace. And so when we come and we pray this prayer and we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, it brings us right back to the grace of Jesus, to the recognition that we all have things that we need forgiveness and healing for and from. And the recognition of this sentence that combines these two ideas of forgiveness and how our forgiveness is connected to our our forgiveness of others. Instead of being terrifying, it, it simply points us to the fact that very often forgiveness breaks our chains. And one of the hardest lessons I think I have had to learn as a follower of Jesus is that as much as forgiveness is for me and frees me, that sometimes, and maybe even often, my forgiveness has no impact on those who have done me wrong. Right? Because oftentimes, they don't know that they did me wrong, or they know, and quite frankly, they don't care. And those are the hardest people to forgive. But never is it more true to know that that forgiveness is more important for me because it is, as I believe it was uh, either Bishop Tutu or Nelson Mandela who said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray and he says, pray like this, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then he goes on and says this, um, these verses afterwards, which seem so stark. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is a hard saying. Because it, on its face value, it seems so... Um, well, I guess you mathematicians will forgive me, but it seems so much like math. Hard and unforgiving. The numbers are the numbers are the numbers. Right? But I want you to notice something. That what Jesus is saying here is he's not inviting us or telling us that we have to do this in order to earn God's forgiveness. Because as we know, God's forgiveness comes without our being able to earn it. N.T. Wright again says this. He says that 
uh, please note, this isn't saying that we do this in order to earn God's forgiveness. It's a further statement of our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom. Claiming this central blessing of the kingdom only makes sense if we are living by that same central blessing ourselves. You see, it's another one of those places where Jesus is inviting us into his way of life. That cross-shaped way of life where we are willing to forgive even though and especially when those we forgive do not deserve and have not earned our forgiveness. Just like we were forgiven. Friends, this is so central to who we are as Jesus people. And I am afraid that we so quickly lose this lesson. We so quickly lose sight of the fact that we ourselves are forgiven and all of a sudden we become the morality police, we become the, the um, you know, decide, get to decide who's in and who's out, we get to decide this, that, and the other thing, what's appropriate, what isn't, and I am not suggesting that theology and doctrine is not important. But what I am suggesting is that the central message of the gospel is that all are welcome at the table. That central image of the kingdom, of these inappropriate feasts and table fellowship, where Jesus welcomes those who the righteous people, air quotes, have excluded. But then he also has dinner parties where, they, where those very people who are doing the excluded are included too. The scandal of the gospel. Miroslav Volf, who is a, a theologian, um, grew up in the midst of the, the Serbian-Croatian conflict, writes amazingly about forgiveness out of that context. He says this, he says that forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. Let me read that for you again. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of others. If there was ever a sentence that probably needs to be read over and over again this week in our nation, it is this one. Because we have made an art form of dehumanizing the people that we disagree with, excluding them from the community of humans, and elevating ourselves to the place of we're the only ones who know what's right and we need no forgiveness or grace. Which brings us right back to this sentence in the, God, in the prayer that Jesus taught us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What Jesus is talking about or presenting here is an attitude or posture of forgiveness. 
right? He's talking about an attitude or a posture of forgiveness. He's talking about learning to move through life in such a way where grace comes out just because you have experienced it so deeply. And so when you are wronged, instead of responding with righteous or self-righteous anger and indignation, you respond with grace and forgiveness in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus told a number of parables about this, the parable of the unforgiving servant being one, right, where the guy uh, is forgiven much but then demands that the person who owes him a fraction of what he was forgiven to pay up. Jesus doesn't have very comforting words for that person. Or that parable that I think is the quintessential picture of the gospel, the parable of the prodigal son, or as I prefer to call it, the parable of the waiting father. This parable where the son who has wandered off and squandered his inheritance comes home and the father runs to him, right? And we all love that part of the parable, Because we all, in some way, can put ourselves in the image of that prodigal who has wandered off. But for most of us, especially those of us who have been raised and grown up in church, we have been, we are more likely to actually be the elder brother than the prodigal son. You remember him, the one who stood on the porch and refused to come into the party because it wasn't fair. The longer I follow Jesus, the more I identify with the elder brother. Because it's so much easier to be self-righteous, so much less costly to be self-righteous than to forgive others as I have been forgiven. So brothers and sisters, it is my hope and prayer that as we think about this phrase, that we will learn and be invited and respond to that invitation to follow Jesus in that way of living. That 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 kingdom that we prayed earlier in the prayer would be present so deeply in us that so also would the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus be that present in us. That we might be able to forgive those who sin against us so that we too might be forgiven. This morning we come to the table And I want to read just one more quote to you. I know I've used a lot of quotes today, but N.T. Wright is so rich. About the Eucharist, the table. He says, The Eucharist is the direct historical descendant not just of the Last Supper, but of those happy and shocking parties which Jesus shared with all and sundry as a sign that they were surprisingly and dramatically forgiven. This meal, in other words, is linked directly to the meals which Jesus explained by telling the story of the running father. Hold that image in your mind 
as you come to communion. Whichever far country you may be in, and for whatever reason, you don't have to stay there one moment longer. By the time you get to the words, forgive us our trespasses, you will already have been embraced by the Father who has run down the road to meet you.